0: I am uh very excited to be here this morning david i'm not sure what they did to my head either i I think they put some brains in i don't I'm not sure who knows what I would be like without that but um, so this morning the the title of the sermon in your bulletin is going to be a little bit different than what I have on the screen um, as late as yesterday, I was thinking through this and what I wanted to say and and through some, some some circumstances, the Lord showed me some things that I was supposed to talk about. Um, so there's a little bit of a change. So I titled it "How God Helps Us Make the Right Decisions, and How We Try to Stop Him." So my sermon is kind of going to be two parts uh, to that. But first, I wanted to show you. This was the question that David gave me word for word, and that is, "How can God help us make the right decisions in life?" and I love this question, so whoever asked it, thank you. But I love this question because it reveals the heart of the person who asked it. And, you know, I I talk to some people my age who think that they're a Christian just because they say they are. Or because that's their title. But uh, truly, the scripture tells us that as believers, we are supposed to live a certain way. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship... Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So this is a question that should be on all of our minds. How does God help us do that? Because that's what we're called to do. Um, again, there's a lot on the screen. I'm not sure how visible it is for you, but in First Peter chapter one, I underlined the part that really I wanted to emphasize. but we are called to be holy it says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is not an option for us. So the question, how can God help us make the right decisions in life, should be relevant and important in each of our lives. So, as part of pursuing holiness, that means sometimes we have to make some pretty difficult decisions when it comes to Uh, decisions that have a clear right, a clear wrong, or sometimes where it feels like there's multiple options that could be the right choice. So how do we do that? Well, uh, spoiler alert, it's really easy. Step one, read the Bible. Step two, pray. The end. That's it. That's all, folks. We can all leave and go to Cracker Barrel now. (laughs) Not really. Although now I'm hungry for their grilled chicken. But anyways, um, I wish it were that simple. And in one way, it is that simple. In another way, it's not. If it is that simple, right, if, it's, if it's as simple as reading scripture and praying, then why do we have such a hard time with it? Why as believers is our constant struggle to be making the right choices and living the right way? And so allow me to talk a little bit about more what I mean by uh, reading the Bible and how God gives us wisdom through that and how he can uh, give us wisdom through praying as well. So uh, just a few, I just want to talk a little bit about scripture, what we know it is, and how we use it. First and foremost, and David talked a little bit about the word of God this morning, but scripture is God's word to us. It is his communication To us, it's a guide for how we should live our lives. It is a filter, a a lens, if you will, that all of our decisions, all of our our lifestyles, our livelihoods should go through um, as approval for how God wants us to live our lives. Scripture is alive. And that sounds a little weird, but scripture is living. If you've ever read the same passage multiple times and have gotten something different from it every time. God reveals something to you different every time. That's what it means. We can read, that's the beautiful thing, this this thing here never gets old. We can read the same thing over and over and over again 500 times and it applies differently. Something different is revealed to us every time. And one thing that scripture does, I'm going to be talking a lot about God's will this morning versus our will because I think that's a huge point in how we make decisions. But scripture reveals his will. It is his will. All of us here probably at one point, especially younger people as they're starting to grow up, get out of school, have asked and hopefully have asked, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for me? This is it right here. This is where we start. Now obviously, yes, there is more to it than that. But God has given us the starting and how we should conduct our day-to-day lives already. That's the beautiful thing. We have a a beginning. We have a starting point. Here are some examples, just three passages in Scripture that talk about the will of God and what the will of God is. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I believe this is the last verse or around the, the end of Ecclesiastes. I can't remember for sure. But it says, The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Right, so right there, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's it. First Timothy 6, chapter 6, says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, talking about some sinful lifestyles uh, prior to that, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life of which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's a lot to keep us busy for a while. And as I mentioned, that's where we should start. That's our starting point. If you are wondering how do I make decisions, whether there's a clear right and a clear wrong answer, or whether it's more gray than that, this is where we should start. So, what about when the right answer is more unclear, a little bit more unclear than what scripture has, or maybe scripture doesn't talk about it. Here's just a few things that came to my mind where there's multiple choices that have the potential of honoring God in our finances, decisions we make with our time, what car we buy, who we marry, what career we choose, decisions around our children. There's not necessarily one right answer for everybody here. God has something planned for each one of us separately when it comes to these things. And that's where Prayer comes into play. Now, I, I find in my own life, and I suspect I'm not alone here, but I think it's part of culture. We lose some of the, we lose sight of some of the, the reality of what prayer is. Right? I'm sure we've all heard thoughts and prayers. Prayers isn't even on the same level as a thought. Right? So I want to talk a little bit and remind myself and remind ourselves about what prayer is. Prayer is not natural, it is supernatural. Prayer is talking to the one who created everything. Right? Prayer is talking to the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. This is not the same thing as calling your friend up and saying, hey, what's going on? This is something special. And the last two bullet points up here it come from a bit of a pet peeve of mine, and I've said it, so don't feel bad if you said it, but if something's going on and there's a, a crisis happening or something unfortunate happens, I'm sure we've heard people say or said, well, all we can do is pray. And I understand what they're saying there, but at the same time, prayer is not our last resort. And I think sometimes we see it as that, well, I've done everything I can do, now I should go to God about it. Prayer should be our first response, whether that's to making a decision or something going on in our lives, good or bad, that should be the first thing we do is come to God with our requests, our aches, our celebrations. Uh, to highlight the power of prayer, this is uh, a, a passage in Mark. Uh, this is after Jesus curses the fig tree. It says, As they, that's the disciples of Jesus, passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree weathered away to its roots. Prayer isn't something that we have to do. It's something we get to do. And I know, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but I want to make sure that before I go into the next part of the sermon, we all have an accurate view and understanding of Scripture's role and prayer's role in our life. That is where we need to start as believers. So, <clears throat> the second part of of my sermon here is talking about three on the screen I call them dangers but you can call them tripping hazards, pitfalls, whatever but three common dangers I think that we have as human beings when it comes to making decisions. We know what's right. We know what to do. We know we should be reading scripture and praying and listening to God but sometimes our emotions and things that happen to us can influence our decision-making in all the wrong ways. Um, so what causes us to struggle with this so much? One thing I'm not going to talk about today is, is fear. A lot of us, when it comes to doing God's will, may have a fear about it. Um, but I wanted to highlight three things that maybe we don't normally hear or talk about a lot when it comes to the conversation of God's will. All right, so the first danger, uh, those of you in my dad's Sunday school class will recognize this term muscle memory. Uh, I did steal it from him. or I didn't steal it, I asked if I could use it. But um, it's the danger of muscle memory and I don't even know what I put in Google Images to find this picture of this cat, but I don't remember, but it just it illustrated what I wanted to, to show here. So when we think about muscle memory in our lives, uh, we, we think about it, in terms of several different things, it can be in the context of sports, playing a sport, whether it's football or golf, after you play it for a while, you kind of know the feel, and and as a golfer, that's where my mind goes to right away, and how I line up to the ball, and how I grip the club, and my swing path, I don't have to sit there and calculate everything every single time I take a swing, because I've done it before. Same, Same thing with you who play musical instruments, especially instruments, uh, like the piano where your, your fingers are having to know where to go. But really anything, especially that you do with your hands, can develop muscle memory. And typically we see it as a good thing, and it is a good thing. Um, it, it can help us develop habits. That could be good or bad. Uh, it allows us to multitask, become efficient and proficient in whatever it is we're doing. When it comes to what I'm calling our Christian muscle memory, As we've grown in our faith, and as we've developed as believers, there are some things that we tend to to get used to doing, and it starts to build muscle memory in our brains. Our brain is a muscle, um, just like any of our other muscles. It grows, um, and depending on our experience, we can grow accustomed to the ways we respond to temptation, how we make decisions in our lives, how we approach discipling or approach teaching or leading somebody. And while this could be a very good thing, the devil can use this to his advantage and use it against us. So I'm going to take a look at a couple stories in Scripture that relates to this. I'm thinking that, David, you may have talked about uh, this passage. This is in Joshua 9. If you'd like to turn there, you may... We're not going to be there for too long, but I am going to read a little bit of this story. So, the beginning of chapter 9, my subheading, and this is the ESV version or the ESV, but my subheading is the Gibeonite Deception. Uh, and to give a little context before I read it, the the, the Gibeonites were a tribe in the surrounding area of Israel and and Joshua as the the leader at the time. And they began to fear the nation of Israel after hearing what Joshua did at Jericho and what's the other place? Uh, I. Thank you, David. Um, So I'm going to read at the beginning of 9. I'm not going to read all of 9, but right around probably about halfway through I will stop. But I want you to think how Our Christian muscle memory applies to this story and how it was used against Joshua. As soon as all the kings, this is verse 1, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Again, What it's saying that they heard was Joshua's triumph at Jericho. Verse 3, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning, and went out and made ready provisions, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. So what they're trying to do here, and while they're getting all this worn out stuff, as we'll see later, is they're trying to make it look like when they come to Joshua that they've been traveling for such a long time, when in reality they're relatively close. Verse 6, and they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. So I'm going to pause here. Something that I failed to mention was Israel could not make, they were not permitted by God to make a covenant with a nation that was close to them. So the Gibeonites, who wanted to make a treaty or a covenant with them that they wouldn't be hurt, knew that they had to make it look like they were coming from far away and weren't one of the neighboring nations. Verse 7, But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon and to Og the king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It is still worn from when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours, look, they are worn out from our very long journey. Right, they're trying to, to sell it here. So the men took some of their provisions and did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Uh Uh-oh, indeed. So, to summarize what happened here, in the last bullet point I didn't read, but it's further on in verse 9. They do find out, but Joshua honors the covenant that they made. So the Gibeons feared destruction. They wanted to make a covenant or a treaty with Israel. They lied about their origin. They tried to make it look good with all their worn-out everything, and Joshua made a covenant with them. So, what went wrong here? Joshua, and I believe it specifically says, so the, so the men took some of their provisions, so men, but multiple people did not ask counsel from the Lord. I want you to think about Why? Here's another story. This is in 2 Samuel. Uh, Ironically enough, this is kind of a continuation of the Gibeonites saga here. In 2 Samuel, chapter 21. Again, I'll read about half of chapter 21. Uh, So David is now king. He's been king for a while. And as we'll see, something happened with the Gibeonites and Saul. So this is chapter 21 starting in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for 3 years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for you to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord, and the king said, I will give them. So again, here's the summary. Saul broke the covenant that Joshua made on behalf of Israel with the Gibeonites. Something that I thought of early this morning is at the beginning it says now there was a famine in the days of David for three years year after year maybe I'm reading too much into this but I would have thought after maybe year one and a half David would have come to the Lord instead of waiting for three years but I maybe he tried to before it doesn't really say but David originally sought the face of the Lord he sought the Lord to say hey what's what's going on here we have a famine something's up and the Lord reveals to him the guilt of Saul and that he broke Joshua's covenant. I think my next question would have been to God, well, or in the moment, maybe it wouldn't have been, but I would have thought that he would have asked God, well, what can I do? But again, he goes to the Gibeonites, asks how to atone, and they end up hanging seven of Saul's descendants. So again, again, David consulted the Lord at first, but he never asked the Lord how to atone. Why? Two different stories, sort of connected. But the same thing's happening here. And this is the danger of what I'm calling Christian muscle memory. These two guys were experienced rulers at the time of these things happening. They neglected to consult with God and therefore failed to do the will of God as a result. So what I mean by the danger of Christian muscle memory, as we get to be experienced believers, especially those who are discipling others or leading or in any sort of ministry, we get to the point, and maybe you even feel this in your own job, but we get to the point where we feel like, I've been doing this for a while, I have a lot of experience, I got this. And this isn't, this isn't even like a, a haughty thing or an arrogant thing, this is just This is neglecting God because things are going well. This is neglecting God and relying on your own experience. Just because we are successful doesn't mean we no longer need God's help, grace, and wisdom. All the more because we are successful, because he got us there, we should rely on him even more. God isn't, he's not going to force himself on us. We have to approach him. We have to reach out to him. This is the danger of of neglect. The second danger that I'm going to talk about this morning is the danger of the norm. And to illustrate what I mean by this, let's talk about one of my favorite characters. Let's talk about John the Baptist a little bit. So there are various passages that describe what this guy was, what he looked like. Here are some descriptors throughout the, the New Testament. The Bible often refers to John as being out in the wilderness or preaching in the wilderness or from the wilderness of Judea. He wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. Do you think that was the norm of society back then? I, I mean, maybe, but I don't think so. It doesn't seem that way. And yet, here's what Scripture has to say about John the Baptist. Matthew 11, it says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Talking about that guy, right? Okay. Luke chapter 1, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer, this is, this is around the birth of John, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Again, that guy. And finally, in Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. So the Bible says John the Baptist was sent. He was called. He was commissioned to do what he did. He was a very, I mean, from what we read in the Scripture, he was a very intense sight. He was a very intense guy. Repent, for the kingdom is near. Someone greater than me is, is coming soon. He was great before the Lord and born of women, there's no one greater. Obviously, we know Christ was born in spirit, born of spirit, and he's the only one greater. But as those born of women, John's it. My point here is that John was not the norm of society, the norm of culture back in this time. But he was called to be that way. That was his role. That was his purpose. That was God's will for John the Baptist. And some of us, and this is where it really hits home for me sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, some of us hold on to the fact that we just want what everybody else has. We just want the norm. We want what the majority of the people around us have. I have the perfect picture of the American dream up here, the beautiful house, the white picket fence, husband, wife, two kids, and a dog. Right? That's, that's all we want. Lord, that's all we want. But he doesn't call everybody to be that way. Sometimes he calls us to be weird in society's eyes and not be able to have what everybody else has. And we have to guard ourselves against the thought of, well, Lord, look over there. He's serving you and he has all this stuff that I want. That's, that's him or her. That's not you. Um, sharing these things today is these are all real things that have happened in my own heart and things that I've had to guard against and I, I, the Bible says uh, there's no sin that's uncommon to man. So I think that we all tend to struggle with some of these things. Being entitled to something is usually never a good thing in the eyes of God. Entitlement to the norm, what the majority of society has, threatens our clarity and our desire to do God's will. We will start making decisions, neglecting, disregarding God's will, because it gets us closer to what we want. That, that, that is a hard pill for a lot of us to swallow. <laughs> the last danger I'm going to be talking about this morning uh, is I'm calling the danger of the wrong good thing. And I have a little picture here of a boy uh, you may see where this is going, but let me, let me set the scene for you here uh, with this one. You have been praying for the Lord to open up a new career for you, open up a new job position. Where, you at, where you're at right now, it's not going well. You've been praying regularly about something new, a change of whatever. And suddenly, a new opportunity or a new career opens for you. It's, it's exciting, a new exciting opportunity. Perhaps there's more money. There's more prestige that comes along with it, more personal growth. Maybe it's even admirable work or a service to others. It's admirable in the eyes of everyone around you, in the eyes of society. And maybe it's even admirable according to Scripture. Maybe it's even an opportunity where you get to witness to others or disciple others, or maybe it's a ministry. But then the Lord says no to that. Everything here... There's nothing inherently wrong with. Everyone around you would probably encourage you to pursue this thing. Oh, that's that's great. You're gonna be serving people. It sounds exactly what you've been looking for. But then God slams the door in your face. Here's the here's what I mean by the wrong good thing. We can't get too attached when an opportunity arises, something comes into our lives where it seems like this is such a good thing, this is exactly what I've been praying for, this is it, but then it, it doesn't happen. This has the potential, and I have seen it in friends, I have seen it in people around me in my life. I've seen it ruin their faith. Why did God let this happen? Why did he take this away from me? I don't know, but he did. It wasn't his will. It has the potential to make us bitter and causes us to perhaps choose to pursue our own will against his anyways. And then we see ruin and destruction and we create baggage for ourselves that then the Lord has to carry when we come back to him. So when something like this happens to us, when we get excited about something new, we've been dreaming for our whole lives of doing this one thing but then the Lord says no. Or when, when, maybe we don't even know what the Lord says. When, as we're starting to pursue this, test it, pray about it, hold it loosely. Because God might have something better for his will and better for you. Praise God when he opens doors for you and when he slams them in your face. Because in both cases, he is making your path straight. And in my own personal life, I know it it seems like it is just crazy things happen where it feels like, oh, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to pursue this. And all of a sudden, something comes out of left field and that's just off the table. That's God nudging us. So be grateful. Praise him and thank him and pray to him whenever he does that. Because he is, he is watching you. He's taking care of you. He is making sure that you are going where it is best for you and where it is best for his plan. When we hold our dreams, our desires, our wishes, our ambitions so tight that when it's off the table, we keep going back to that and trying to grasp when it's gone is, is when, when these things happen all about how we hold our own plans and our own desires in our heart. Here's a few examples from scripture that just came to my mind. It's the first few things that I thought of. Uh, Paul talks about several times in his letters about his desire to visit Rome, his attempts to visit Rome. I tried multiple times. He eventually made it as a prisoner, but you know, you think about all the things that Paul was probably able to do by not visiting Rome. Or the things that he was able to do by visiting Rome as a prisoner that it all worked out for the better and Paul probably struggled i mean he he said he was prevented his his exact word was it he was prevented to go to Rome and he was okay with that he's like, this is my desire, but I was prevented I'll, I'll keep trying and see what the what the Lord has something else is is David King David's plan to build a temple it was David made the plans, it was his dream, but it was God's will for Solomon to actually see it carried out. And David accepted that. And the ultimate example of this, of course, is Jesus dying on the cross. And the night before this, Jesus himself prayed to God, Lord, if it is in your will, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. Don't let this happen. It would have been, I mean, it would have been a, every time Jesus talked about this, the disciples were like, no, what are you talking about? We're not going to let that happen. That can't happen. It would have been a good thing for Jesus to be able to live. But we know what had to happen. He had to die, and we ultimately know he is alive today. Um, but this can be a very tough thing to accept sometimes. So we, before we are in these circumstances, before we are in the thick of it with all the emotions and all of the ups and downs, we have to prepare our hearts, we have to prepare ourselves, we have to trigger ourselves to recognize whenever we're going through these things. Because if we don't, we're going to be taken down. So make plans, get excited about things, have goals, have dreams, have desires, but ultimately hold them loosely And in accordance with God's will, it's excited to to something you've always wanted to do. It's excited to to dream about that, to get excited about that. But we ultimately have to check it with what God wants, and He gives us desires a lot of times and passions and talents to prepare us for what we do. But that doesn't always work out. And then when things aren't going well. when things are going well as we saw uh, earlier with Joshua and David we can't neglect we can't neglect God so uh, to conclude here this morning wow David I think I beat your record here buddy for being early not being not being late Um, (laughs) this is I know I talked a lot about some dangers this morning but I'm ultimately trying to spur you and prepare you for guarding your heart against these things. Right? God has f- freely given us wisdom here. His word says that if we ask for wisdom, if we seek it, we will find it and talk to him. Don't neglect it no matter what's going on. If you're successful, if you're not successful, pray to him. Consult him. Bring your desires before him. That's my, that's my charge this morning to you all. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come to you this morning with gratitude that we are able to be here together this morning uh, and, and safely we thank you for your mercy that is new every day. We need it. And Lord, I pray that every person this morning uh, takes your words uh, here that I read this morning to heart, Lord, and that we cannot hold. I pray that we don't hold our own ambitions, our own desires too tightly that we're afraid to let them go when you have something different. Give us wisdom, Lord. Remind us to seek you. Remind us to saturate ourselves on scripture and meditate on scripture. And thank you for this, this wonderful congregation, Lord, and for my opportunity this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.